Good morning, Zion family. It is such an honor for me to be with you this morning. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share. I absolutely love your pastor, not just because he's my brother, but because he is, in my opinion, one of the best pastors we have in our city. I'm really excited to join in this series, The Way of Jesus, and I want to share with you this morning an aspect of Jesus's life that I think is sorely needed for us as New Yorkers. I'm going to go into the scriptures and I'm going to read a few passages that kind of set the foundation as we then hone in on the life of Jesus. Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 to 6 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 to 14. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied unto John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would meet us this morning, that you would speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him in a fresh and transformative way to each and every one of us. And Father, may we grow in love, affection, and surrender to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember in 2001, I had the privilege of going to the great nation of Spain. It was a summer mission trip, and this was right before 9-11. Had no idea that the world was about to be turned upside down in just a few weeks. This was July of 2001. I remember we went to Madrid when we landed. We had this long layover, the longest layover ever in history. And so what we did was we actually left the airport and we explored the city of Madrid. And no disrespect to Madrid, but I wasn't that impressed because it felt like a smaller version of Manhattan. Beautiful architecture, totally different setting obviously, but it was fast paced, it was busy, it was crowded. But then we spent the majority of our mission trip time in the city of Valencia. And now Valencia had its city feel, but it was dramatically slower. And just a, a, the pace of life, the rhythm was not like the busy hustle and bustle of Madrid. And I remember one night, there was a Spaniard. This was his home. I'm visiting, so I'm observing. I'm noticing everything. For him, this was just a regular night. And on this regular night, he took a walk. And when I tell you, to this day, when I think of it, my body still reacts. Because I remember as I watched him walk, I felt a wave of anxiety. Because this man took the slowest walk ever. 
It was no aim to it, no direction, no energy. It was like, is, is he alive? Is this, is what's going on? It was the weirdest thing. And I felt so much anxiety. I wanted to run to him like, go somewhere. Don't you have somewhere to go? You're, you're, and I realized at that moment how the city had jacked me up. How coming from New York, we are accustomed to living hurried lives. And in New York, we're busy while we're being busy. We're constantly on the go. And this actually has a huge negative impact on our walk with Jesus. See, because one of the hallmarks of living a hurried life, and for many of us, this is just the norm. We don't even question it. We don't even think that there's an alternative. But one of the hallmarks for living a hurried life is that we're rushed through life and through our lives feeling rushed. It's always feeling overflowing and full to a capacity that doesn't feel manageable. And accompanying this, this state of hurriedness is this nagging emptiness because what ends up happening is we miss important things. We overlook. We gloss over things. See, a hurried life is typically drenched in worry. And as people, I realize that we worry about so many things. In fact, if you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're tuning in. I hope you continue to explore who Jesus is and examine what it looks like to follow him. But even without you crossing that line of faith, one thing that we have in common as followers of Jesus and yourself is that we both worry. It's a human condition. We are prone to worry. And hurry just exacerbates that tendency. When we're hurried, we end up worrying about everything. Our parents, our family, our relationships, our children, our career, but even bigger issues. We worry about the environment, about politics, about things that are beyond our control. Worry is just this constant state when life doesn't seem to fit in and that we don't have enough time and energy to tend to everything. It is unmanageable and unbearable. But contrast to that norm for us is how life is viewed and seen and, and experienced from the eyes of God. Because one of the things that scripture will confront us with immediately, it's jarring, it's so counter to what we are used to, is that God is not in a rush. God is never in a rush. In fact, when we, the first verses we read, it's an interesting idea to consider that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, everything that we taste, see, smell, experience, stand on, we are living within his creation and that you and I are his creation. And Genesis tells us that it took six days to create everything we see and that he rested on the seventh day. And as of late, as I've been studying just this idea of a hurried life and the contrast of how God is not in a hurry, it dawned on me that God could have created everything in one moment. He didn't need six days to rest up, you know, like day one was tough and just needed a good nap, good sleep, gonna count, you know, be ready for day two. God didn't need to pace this thing out because any endurance or weakness on his part. No, quite the contrary. He could have created everything in an instant. Yet we see him pacing. We see him not in a hurry. 
taking his time when he has the power and the ability to not have to take his time. And what's interesting furthermore is that this doesn't just begin and end in Genesis, but actually this trend of God not being in a rush continues and actually spills over into messianic prophecy. Because the verses that we read in the book of Malachi, this is, these are the last prophetic words uttered before the coming of Jesus. And in these words, the prophet Malachi is saying that before the arrival of the Messiah, there would be an Elijah, a second Elijah, someone that would come in the spirit of the first prophet Elijah to pave the way for the Messiah. Do you know how many years happened to take place between those words of Malachi and fast forward to the arrival of John the Baptist, which we read, Jesus said, was that Elijah figure? Four hundred years. This is what's known as the intertestamental period, this period of time between the last prophetic words of the old covenant before the arrival of Jesus and the declaration of the new covenant there is a 400-year period of silence. And so God's declaring that a Messiah is coming. He's going to heal the world. He's going to restore things to, to the state that they were before sin, restore our relationship with him, begin to heal his creation from within. The tomb will soon be empty. The cross will, will stand in historic uh, setting for all eyes to see forever. It's this event that took place in time but has eternal ramifications. You and I are watching this today because of what took place, what was foretold, but yet he took his time. 400 years. Even when it comes to the saving of the world, he's not in a rush. God is never in a rush. And even going to specifically to the life of Jesus, now when Jesus, our Messiah, arrives, if you study scripture, you know that he didn't start his public ministry till 30 years after he was born. Over and over and over again, we see that God is not in a rush. And in particular, when we study the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, you'll notice that specifically, Jesus, our Messiah, the one that you and I are apprentices of, that we seek to not just believe in him, but to imitate how he lived his life. See, one of the things that marks a disciple is that we just don't believe in Jesus and don't, and don't translate that belief into the imitation of his practices, his rhythms, his priorities. But we believe and we imitate how he lived. And that's contrast to secular culture where our society would tell us, be like Jesus but don't believe who he is and what he says. But sometimes as Christians, we believe who Jesus is, believe what he said, but we don't behave and live like him. We need both belief and imitation as his disciples. And if you and I are going to imitate Jesus and, and seek to grow in the way of Jesus and live as he lived, it is impossible it will not be reconcilable for you and I to try to live as Jesus lived and walk in the way of Jesus while still being committed to living a hurried life. Jesus was never in a rush. And that's contrary to our society as well because in our day and age, the more important you are, the less time you waste. 
I heard of a guy that lived in New York for about 15, 20 years, and throughout that whole time, he never once took a subway ride. Now, some of you may be like, man, I wish I could never take a subway ride. Have you been in a subway lately, Chris? It's crazy. He, he, he did not make that choice because of hygiene purposes or overcrowdedness. That was not his issue. His issue was this. This was before cell phone signals could go underground. And his rationale was this. If he goes down into the subway and he loses signal, he can't make transactions. He will lose money for that hour or half hour or however long it is. And so he had a personal driver take him everywhere just so that he could always be accessible. Whether it's helicopter rides or getting a chauffeur, that's what our society says. If you're important, if you're powerful, then you live in this constant state of being rushed and being in a hurry. Yet Jesus, the most busiest life you could ever imagine, you and I would never dare to put our schedule compared to Jesus. He will win every day. Jesus had a busy life. He was not idle, yet he was never hurried. Process that for a moment. Our Messiah did not sit on his hands. He did not just let days go by with no intentionality. His days were full, yet in the busyness, he was never hurried. Having all the power, yet he was never hurried. I think of a commentary that C.S. Lewis once made about how in our society, and this was during his lifetime, and it remains true that busyness is a sign of importance. It, 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 he used this example, if you go into like a, a dentist and you see a lot of people waiting, you would imagine this must be a good dentist because look at how busy his office, his practice is. But if you go in there and you don't see a lot of people, you may wonder, he must not be that good. Busyness, overflowing schedules is a sign of importance, of power, of prestige. But it's often a sign of vanity in that we tend to ascribe importance to ourselves the busier we are and the more hurried we live. You know, in, ja in Japan, there's actually a work till you die, a work to death culture. It's a badge of honor for people to work insane hours and then crash and then just get back up and do it again. In America, there are so many unused vacation days every single year. We overwork, we work till we're exhausted, we work till we're sick. Uh, it has an impact on our lives, on our relationships. And contrary to all of that, for us as disciples of Jesus, and for those of you that want to know who this Jesus is, be, let's be very clear. If you were to follow Jesus, he would be inviting you to live at a pace that's dramatically different than the pace that the world calls you to live in. He invites all of us as we follow him to live this unhurried life. And so... If Jesus lived this unhurried life, the question then becomes, how did he think about time? His, how did he manage time? And this is an interesting question because for the first time, the God of the universe who exists outside of time enters into his own creation and now he's functioning within the constraints of his creation. And for the first time, time is part of his factoring, his decision making. When he does things is determined by the time of the day. And so now Jesus has a definitive approach to time. And we have to ask, 
What was that? And it's interesting what we discover when we look at how he saw and approached time. For one, before we even dive into that, I think it's, it, it's relevant to realize three things we could do with time. Number one, we could either waste time, we could spend time, or we could invest time. Think about how you're approaching time and how hurried, uh, living a hurried life impacts your choices on how you manage time. And now contrast that with the hyper-intentionality of Jesus when it came to time, how he carried time in his soul was very different than you and I. And in fact, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 gives us a glimpse into how Jesus lived his life and his relationship to time and why he didn't live a hurried life. It says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? See, one of the things that we can see why Jesus didn't live a hurried life and why he was not always in a rush is because he's telling us to not worry because he did not live in this worried state. I know, I know this can be sensitive to really kind of poke at and unearth, but if we're honest today, the vast majority of us are living under a cloud of intense worry, constantly. We're worrying about things we can't control. We're worrying about relationships that we really can't control either, or things that are beyond our ability to influence. We're worrying about things also that God tells us not to worry about. We're worrying about, will we have enough uh, provision? Will we have enough food? Will we have shelter? We're worrying, worrying, worrying. And that's why it's not a mystery why we live such hurried lives, because often we hurry and we keep this frenetic pace because we're trying to numb and lull the sense of worry that we carry. Some of us don't want to turn the engine off of our life and slow down because we really don't want to come face to face with the things that we carry in our hearts. The worry, the heaviness that often resides deep in our hearts. I remember as a New Yorker, I didn't start driving till I was 26. And some of you are saying, yeah, you can't blame that on being New York. You just didn't have any driving ambition. Whatever. Don't judge me, Zion. But it was the truth. I just felt like I don't need a car. I got the train, whatever. But then I met my wife, and she was a driver, and she, she said, if you don't get your license before we get married, we were engaged at that point. She's like, I won't go through with the wedding. That's tough talk, right? But um, ultimately, I didn't want to call her bluff because she was going to marry me. There's no way she was going to let me go. I'm, a, I'm an incredible catch. I got my license, and now I'm driving, and I don't know nothing about cars. And one day I'm driving, and I see what looks on the dashboard like a little genie lamp. I'm like, yo, what's up? Aladdin's in my car. I don't know what's going on. And so I'm kind of frantic. I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on. So I pull over, and I'm trying to figure it out. And then I think, oh, wait a second. That's not a genie lamp, genius. That means oil. And so I pop the hood open. And I remember I saw someone check for oil. I was like, I got this. All right, it's not that confusing. And I pull out the thing to kind of do the reading, and it shows no oil. I'm like, yo, this car's, what did I do? I drove this car down to the ground. This is bad. Call my father-in-law, 
and I say, hey, I need some help. I'm pulled over. I, I'm the oil, the genie lamp. I'm like all frantic. And he tells me in his thick Brooklyn accent, says, did you turn the car off? I'm like, uh, uh, no, no. He's like, well, you can't get a reading on the oil if you don't. So I'm like, oh, okay. And I turned the car off. And then at that point, I was able to get an actual reading of how much oil was in the engine. And at that moment, a spiritual principle kind of came alive. And that is that you and I can't tell how empty or how full we are until we stop. We can't tell what we're running off of, if we're running on fumes or we're actually filled with God's presence, His Word, His Spirit, until we actually shut down. And for some of us, we're committed to live a hurried life because the last time we slowed down, we had to face some ugly things. We had to realize our priorities were off, that we were not tending to important things in our life, and the hurry was a way of distracting ourselves from things that we need to face. Jesus did not live a hurried life. He was intentional with everything he did. See, he didn't spend his waking hours worrying, and so he tells us not to worry. Jesus didn't spend, uh, Jesus spent time daily with the Father. If you read the scriptures, you'll see he had this intense, intentional rhythm. It didn't matter how busy his ministry day was, he would either retreat early in the morning alone to be with the Father, or he would stay up late and go on the mountainside and be alone. There was this rhythm that Jesus had that the busier his life was, the more unhurried his disciplines were to slow down and be with the Father. See, busyness or hurriedness didn't tell Jesus what would happen in his day. Rather, his priorities shaped his day. He told his day what was going to happen. He didn't let the pace of things get him out of sorts. And we see in the life of Jesus, he was intentional to cultivate relationships. Not only did he spend time with his heavenly father, he spent time with his earthly family, with his closest friends. The life of Jesus truly checks us, convicts us. And if we stop long enough, you'll hear him inviting us to say, I have a different way for you to live. A life that can be busy and full, but unhurried. A life of great intentionality where your days are defined by my priorities, my word, my truth, and not the values of your surrounding culture. You can live an unhurried life. And it's time that we agree and settle up and determine to say yes to this alternate way of living, this unhurried life that Jesus calls us into, because living a hurried life is costing us a great deal. You may ask, what is living a hurried life costing us? Here's, one, here's some things. When we're living a hurried life, we tend to skim on the surface of our health, our relationships, and most importantly, our relationship with God. We don't go deep. Everything is surface. We just skim at best. We never really dive into the core of things. We struggle to be present when we're living a hurried life. But we also struggle to actually be responsive in the right way to situations, to needs, to people. And one of the, one of the staff in our church that oversees our family ministry, 
She said this something recently that was quite profound. I'll share it with you. She said, I've noticed that it's hard to do things with the right motive when you're tired. When we're hurried and we're exhausted, it's hard to obey. For some of us, probably one of the biggest impediments to us breaking cycles of disobedience and actually following Jesus and that difficult call of carrying our cross and denying ourselves is the fact not that we don't want to or that we don't agree with it or that we're just going to resist God. If we come face to face, sometimes the honest answer is we're exhausted. We're so tired that out of the recesses of that exhaustion, we just keep doing what we're familiar with rather than actually breaking those patterns as we establish new rhythms that Jesus calls us into. You know, I want to share with you uh, some ideas from this really great book. It's called, um, it's, it, the book is basically about living an unhurried life. It's Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry by John Mark Comer. And he talks about the warning signs of a hurried life, 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. I'm going to rattle these off for you because they might resonate and they might be something that you want to consider. First thing to note that you might be living a hurried life and it's gotten to the place where this is getting you sick. It's, it's in a chronic state is constant irritability, constant irritability. All of us could be irritable at times. But when you're living a hurried life, irritability is always there at the surface. It's visceral. It's the first thing. It's your first reaction of the many that you could choose. The other thing, the other sign is hypersensitivity. Again, we can all be sensitive. And in fact, we should be sensitive. Certain things should trigger you. But when you're hypersensitive, everything triggers you. There's no safe conversation. There's no safe people. Everything triggers you. If that's where you're at, you might have hurry sickness, restlessness. If you find yourself that you can't ever stop, that you can't ever pause, that you're constantly fidgeting, that you're always on the go, hurry sickness may be at work. Next symptom is workaholism or just non-stop activity. When was the last day you took a day off, planned a vacation? Do you practice Sabbath regularly? Or are you constantly on the go and your activity is endless? Whether you're working or in your recreation, it's just nonstop, nonstop, and you're never stopping, never pausing, never resting. The other sign of hurry sickness is emotional numbness. When you reach a place where you no longer feel, where you don't want to feel, or even if you wanted to, you can't, because you've just been in this state of numbness for so long, Hurry sickness may have taken its toll on you. Next sign, out of order priorities. When you and I care more about things than people, when we care more about people than God, our priorities are out of order. If you are recognizing that my priorities are a bit out of order, the things I'm saying yes to and the things I'm saying no to don't line up with the fact that I'm following Jesus, hurry sickness may be at work. Lack of care for your body. If you're finding yourself that there's no intentionality in the things that you eat, exercise, sleep, where there's just no plan uh, for how you can care for your body, the only body we've been given and entrusted with, then hurry sickness may be at work. Escapist behaviors is the next one. We, if, if excessive binge watching or 
video games or whatever it is um, that you know that this is an escapist behavior. What could be excessive drinking or eating or or uh, excessive vacationing. You're you're so you're you're too broke to be going on all these trips, but you just want to keep escaping. That may be a sign of hurry sickness, slippage of spiritual disciplines. If you are in a rut, a cycle of not practicing spiritual disciplines for a bit, then it could be hurry sickness that's at work. We can all have a lapse here and there, but when it is a cycle, it's a pattern that's being ingrained in your life, hurry sickness may be at work. And last but not least, isolation. When you and I are living in a constant hurried state, it pulls us more and more away from others. We detach and disconnect. And that's tricky right now because we have been detached and disconnected for quite some time due to the pandemic. But isolation may have been something that was brewing before even all of this. For some of us, we've been too busy to make it to a small group and to connect with others and to go to the prayer meeting and to be present and to go hang out. It, we've been isolated for a long time. We want to blame the pandemic, but that would just be scapegoating. Some of us, we've been isolated for way longer and we have to face the fact that hurry sickness may be at work. If you find resonance with one, two, all of these, it's time for you to check in with Jesus as he offers you a different path as he offers you a life that's flowing and fully flourishing, but it's unhurried. What's the way forward for us? Right now, some of us are feeling convicted. Some of us are feeling determined to change. Some of us might be feeling hopeless or discouraged. What's the way forward if you recognize I live a hurried life and Jesus, the way of Jesus is counter to that and I wanna say yes to Jesus and keep saying yes to Jesus. Here's a way forward that I wanna invite you to consider as Jesus says these powerful words. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus says this, "'Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, "'and I will give you rest. "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, "'for I am gentle, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, what Jesus is saying in these words are so powerful for us who are living hurried lives because he extends this incredible invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. In the original language, weary and burdened, this is not like slightly tired or just, I just need a little bit more coffee or if I could just hit the snooze button a few more times, I'll be ready. No, this is a chronic sense of fatigue. And Jesus says, come to me all who are in this state where life is unmanageable. You are done. You don't have the reserves to answer the demands that are coming your way. And Jesus says, if you find yourself in this worried, burdened, heavy place, you can come to me. And notice the open door of that invitation. He didn't say, come to me and I'll give you rest if you worked really hard for it. He's not looking at your timesheet and saying, you know, you really crushed it this week. You got everything done. 
you can rest. But now you, you sat on your hands. You didn't know. He says, if you recognize that the way you're living your life is unmanageable, you're in a constant state of despair and heaviness, come. No qualifiers. No tests you have to pass. No standards you have to meet. The only thing you have to be willing to admit is that you're weary, that you're burdened. Look at the goodness of our God. He invites us without discriminating, without putting barriers that most of us would never be able to overcome. He says, come to me. But look at how he offers rest. This is what's interesting. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. At first glance, this is disorienting language because Jesus is saying, if you're weary and you're burdened, come, I'll give you rest. But when you come, I'm going to put a yoke on you. And so at first glance, it's like there is nothing restful about what you're offering because a yoke is something that's heavy. But what we understand as we look at the context and how the first hearers of these words would have understood it is that it was in their, their dialogue, in their normal language, they would often refer to the tradition of the rabbis, the word of God even, as the yoke of the law. And so what Jesus is saying, if you come, if you're weary and you're burdened and you come to me for rest, the way I'm going to give you rest is to put my word on you as a yoke where you will carry my word, and upon carrying my word and living out my word, that's where you'll find rest. What we come to understand is that what Jesus is offering, he's offering rest under the context of a discipleship relationship. Rest is accessible by, to all, but only disciples can enter into it because rest is connected to this invitation to follow Jesus in this yoke of a relationship where his law, his word is resting on us. As disciples, our only choice is to choose the word of Jesus, to follow his way. Yes, we have other paths, we have other alternatives, but as disciples, we are committing to say, I won't go down this path or that path because I am committed to the way of Jesus. His word is resting on me. But another way that the first hearers of these words would have understood, they lived in an agrarian society. They lived in a culture that all around them, they would see farms and fields. And one animal that they would be very familiar with was the ox. And at that time in agrarian societies, oxen would plow the field. Now some of you are like, man, I didn't know that. Of course you didn't know that. You live in Queens, you live in Brooklyn. You know, if you have oxen near you, call somebody, get some help. That's a dangerous place. But you, you, if we grew up then, we would have seen oxen all the time. And what they would do, they would pair a strong, healthy, more mature oxen with a younger one in a yoke. And the yoke would rest on both of their shoulders. And they would be harnessed together. And so now they couldn't move without each other. But here's the beautiful imagery. The stronger, more mature ox would carry the younger one. And the younger one would grow into the maturity of the older one. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus is inviting us into. He says, come be my disciple. Let my word rest on you. And as you walk with me, I will carry you. The heavy lifting I'll do. 
See, this is why the scriptures tell us to not be proud or not be boastful, because if we really understand the dynamics of our relationship with Jesus, what can we be proud of? What can we boast in when he's doing the heavy lifting, when he is the one that's carrying us, when this is all made accessible by grace, but it's not our efforts or our ability to earn that changes anything. He is carrying us. I say with pride, and so should you, that I'm a follower of Jesus. And what that means is that since the age of 14 to now 41, he has carried me. I haven't carried him. And at times I couldn't carry myself. I couldn't carry others. I couldn't carry the weight of life. I was weary and burdened. Much like some of us, if you're having an honest moment, you say, man, this is just too much. I can't do this on my own. And there stands Jesus offering us his way. Come walk in my way. And one of the first steps in this new path of living is to live an unhurried life within the context of a discipleship relationship with Jesus. I want to encourage you, as you prepare to live an unhurried life with Jesus, the first thing practically to prepare you for is prepare to detox. Prepare for the first couple days, weeks, months, that you're going you're gonna to find yourself craving for the busyness, the, the hurriedness, the overflowing, unmanageable pace of life. Because what we're, many of us are not aware of, it has been our drug of choice. And right now, Jesus is trying to wean us off of that and liberate us. So prepare to detox for a season. Prepare to potentially want to go back to our hurried life. But as you commit to walking in this yoke with Jesus, step by step with him, allow his grace to overcome you and allow him to just take off the burdens, the weariness, the burdens of sin and shame and guilt, the burden of wounds and trauma. Come to me, Jesus says, so I could teach you how to live life. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you for my wonderful Zion family. I thank you for the privilege that it is to be with them this morning, to share your word. I pray, Lord, even through the medium of a screen, would you speak, would you meet with us? Would you change us? Lord, teach us to walk in the way of your son and teach us to choose this unhurried life you invite us into. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Zion. I can't wait to see you in person in the future. Continue to serve Jesus, to love him, to be the light, the salt, the witness that you are in our city. I love you. Have an incredible week.